hopefully by now we've demonstrated the fact that the culture's solution is not a solution. It's just adding to the problem. That's what it's doing. And you might be feeling heavy at this point. We should be. If we're actually hearing what's going on, we should be very heavy with the burden of this, but it's not primarily ours to carry. It is, the, it is God's burden. He is sovereign. He's over all. So we want to infuse some hope into this situation tonight and, uh, and go into what is the response from Scripture? What is the response uh, from the Bible? But first of all, I want you to notice the church's response, what it has been historically. Sometimes it's been good and effective, but for the most part, not so much. The Christian church always seems to be one step behind these movements. We're not even aware they're going on until they hit the media. Or we watch Hollywood and we're entertained by the movies, but we don't even think about what is being said or what, how we are being affected by these narratives that are coming into us. And we even start talking a certain way without, again, thinking that we're being affected by it at all. Church seems to be trying to keep up, unsure of the next step, somewhat embarrassed, almost apologetic to stand on the truth of God's word. The first one was the purity culture movement in the 1990s. Some of us remember this. It was in Christian music. Um, it was in Josh Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was a catalyst for the movement. Southern Baptists coined the phrase, true love waits and so on. And what they were trying to teach again and preach is abstinence until marriage. All of that is wonderful, but they were not preaching it in a gospel-centered sort of way. It was all in a performance-based methodology. And some false promises were made or implied, maybe not even explicitly made, such things as if you save yourself for marriage, you're going to have a wonderful sex life in your marriage. And of course, when that didn't happen, people were disappointed and so on because they had a wrong view of what God's design for sex was and so on. Uh, purity was emphasized, 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 and it, was always, it always seemed to have to do with the physical act of intercourse and so on. Uh, and purity was kind of labeled with that. So again, you got a lot of young people wondering, okay, where's the line? How close can I get to the line? We're not speaking to the heart. We're not getting people to pursue holiness because holiness is beautiful. It's more beautiful than sexuality. We're not doing that. The purity culture was... Uh, really giving a performance-based system that was being used. We're not throwing the whole thing out. It obviously had a good intention in mind, but it led to a lot of, again, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of guilt and so on, and a lot of failure. It, it didn't cure what was going on. Uh, secondly, for the most part, again, the church's response has been rather uncomfortable, uncomfortable about dealing with sexuality. Many churches and Christian parents avoid the topic with their children altogether. They're afraid to speak about it. Uh, it's just too uncomfortable to talk about. Maybe because of our own sexual baggage that we've never faced or dealt with. Or maybe they're hopeful that by ignoring it, they'll protect their children from the reality of sex. But again, implied in that is the idea that sex is bad. That is not the Christian gospel at all gives the appearance that God has no answers and is somewhat embarrassed about the subject. He's squeamish about it. It also leads young people to the idea that 
The only people with the answers are the culture. Definitely not the church. The next one is uh, very little clarity on the why of sexual boundaries. We're going to look at that tonight, dig into it for a few moments, but the why, we're always, you know, the do's and the don'ts are, of sexual boundaries are, are not explained, they're just emphasized, and uh, the reasoning is that God is God, it doesn't matter why he gives the commands, just follow them, and so on. But God, in his holiness, is most beautiful, and when we see his glory, and we are completely uh, enwrapped in his glory, everything else becomes secondary. We're not attracted to other things. But instead, we keep our minds kind of focused on sexuality. Don't, 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 don't. And we're not giving people the why that God is most glorious. He is the only one who can satisfy you and so on. And then the last one, uh, just wanted to point out with the church's general response has been really no response to the culture's message. We run and hide. As these movements appear in our culture, the church tries to stay under the radar and whisper these things. Whisper what uh, Christian morality looks like. Just talk to people in the choir. We don't talk to the culture. And we don't know how to respond when people bring up things like the transgender movement and so on. We don't know how to respond. We don't know what to say. So what should we say? Well, we're going to look at theology and sex. And again, this is a gospel matter. It is. It's not some side issue. It is actually very central uh, in God's plan and purpose for humanity. Yes, what you think about God is going to form your viewpoint of sex. It is. And so you see that with, again, with the cultural movement, what they think about God has formed their ideas about sex. Darwin, Freud, Marx, all these guys had a view of God that said, he's not there. We're on our own. So we can do whatever we want and we can make it up as we go. But that's not what scripture tells us. That's not what the witness of creation tells us. There is a God. He is very personal. First thing we want to see is that God designed sex for his glory or to reflect his glory. The culture's definition of sex is a counterfeit, folks. It's not the real thing. We need to understand that and see it that way. Cultural sexuality, the sexuality that Hollywood tries to depict is a counterfeit. It is full of lies. Yes, they make the counterfeit look attractive, and part of the problem is the church has stayed silent on what God has actually designed and how beautiful that is. God created us as sexual beings for the purpose of glorifying him or reflecting his glory by being in his image, made in his image. Authentic sexuality is biblical sexuality. The original design of the designer. First of all, it takes priority in Scripture. Just want to notice a few things to try and back this point up. This is very, very important. First of all, it's priority. It is a priority in Scripture. Sexual intimacy is a major theme throughout the Scriptures that reflect the reality of God's covenant love for his people or the gospel. Redemptive history. It begins with God's design for sexual intimacy in Genesis 2. When a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. 
And Genesis 2 tells us that the man and the woman were both naked and unashamed. And that is the ultimate goal for intimacy in marriage. I'm not just talking physical intimacy, relational, emotional, spiritual intimacy. You have two people from broken backgrounds living in a broken world who now have to work for the rest of their life to bring barriers down and to be more and more unashamed and trusting of the other person throughout their life. That is God's design for marriage. It is challenging in a broken world. It is challenging because we come in with baggage. That's true, but that's what God designed. The Bible ends with the marriage supper of the lamb and his bride in Revelation 21, the marriage of the lamb and his bride. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to this. Song of Songs or Song of Solomon devoted to marital intimacy has many things to teach us about that relationship. Old Testament narratives contain straightforward sexual details. Israel's apostasy is vividly depicted, and when I say vividly, I mean vividly depicted as spiritual adultery. Just read Ezekiel 16, and you'll understand what I'm, what I'm saying. The apostles do not shy away from sexual issues in the church, and Jesus repeatedly confronted and addressed sexual defilement and sexual holiness. God is not squeamish or silent about our sexuality. We need to be clear about that and unapologetic about it. God is not squeamish or silent about our sexuality. He does not run from the dark imagery of sexual brokenness in our world or the dark reality of it, not imagery. It also it reflects the gospel narrative, Ephesians 5, 31, where Paul, again, he quotes Genesis 2, and then he says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It reflects the gospel narrative. You know that when Jesus said in John, uh, I think it's John 17, he's praying to his father before he goes to the cross, and he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. That word for know is the word that is used throughout the Bible for sexual intimacy, knowledge intimate knowledge of another person on the deepest of levels. I'm not trying to sexualize the gospel, folks, but sex in itself, as designed by the creator, reflects the glory of the gospel narrative. It also sanctifies individuals. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives the church in Corinth, which was an over-sexualized culture as well, very uh, specific instructions about sexuality within the boundaries of marriage. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife should give to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back again sexually together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the language he's using of giving to the other and not depriving of the other are other-centered instructions. Do you know what that means? That goes against our self-centeredness, doesn't it? Back to those presuppositions we looked at in the beginning. It goes against that. So what happens over time in a biblical marriage 
where we are seeking the ultimate goal of intimacy on a relational level with another person who's not like ourselves, we get sanctified through that. Sanctified means we are made holy, more like Jesus. We become more other-centered in our love as we serve the other. And also it celebrates covenant love. The Proverbs, uh, the wise man is teaching his son, drink water from your own cistern in Proverbs 5, flowing water from your own well. In other words, be delighted with your own wife. Don't be looking and lusting after other women who are not your wife. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of waters in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Intoxication. The idea again, God delights in covenant love. It's a context for a healthy and satisfying relationship within the safety of a committed and covenant-bonded marriage. God designed it for his glory. It reflects a good God when it is put in a good light. By the way, maybe I'm going to say it later. I don't know, but I'll say it now. I had one of the messages that I heard as a father that really affected me was a message by Josh McDowell on being a father. And in that message, he mentioned, he said, you know, I knew when my kids were teenagers or when they were getting to the age where I was talking to them about sexuality, I knew this conversation was going to go well when they answered one question for me. And that question was, Do you want to have a relationship someday in your marriage that I have with your mom? And their answer to that proved whether or not his job would be easy or hard with teaching them God's design for sexuality. Why? Because his marriage to their mother was to be a reflection of a good God, to glorify God. That's the goal. And that's central to discipling our children in our home. Uh, Anyways, that's a side note. I think it might come up again later, but I have to say it while it's on my mind. The next one, God determines moral boundaries. He determines them. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to... Control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Why is it knowing God helps us with self-control? Because when you really know God and worship God, he is your fulfillment. That whole idea of appetites and feelings and so on have to be held in check when knowing God is what fulfills us in our lives. And folks, if that's not the case, then we need to pursue God and understand him for who he really is. God determines moral boundaries. He's the one who sets them, not us. That's why we're not apologetic for them. He sets boundaries to protect us. Look back at the devastation caused by the sexual revolution and its impacts on our society's children should be all the proof that we need that sex outside of the boundary of committed covenant love in marriage is going to devastate you and 
those around you. It's like holding a stick of dynamite that in its own context can be so powerfully used. Maybe that's not the greatest illustration because dynamite destroys, but you get the idea, or it could blow up in your face. I think Dr. Dan Allender used the idea of a wave, like a giant wave that can be used and can be so massive and glorious in itself and, and beautiful, but if it crashes on you, it could break your neck. That's, that's the idea of sex uh, being used outside of the boundaries of a good God. He sets the boundaries. Next, God demands perfection, folks. We're not going to compromise on this. This is part of the gospel message. We are sinners. Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. In other words, the cultural in, uh, influencers of that time period were making lines and loopholes where they wanted them to be. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus says, if your eye of right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It's really extreme and graphic language, but he's trying to prove a point here. That whatever that offending member is, uh, we need to do everything we can to deal with what is going on, even if it's just in our mind or just being what we see with our eyes. Or uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Sexual sin is judged by God. God demands absolute perfection. That's why the purity culture didn't go far enough. The idea that, well, purity means certain things. And, and of course, it, it may just have been implied, but we're not just pursuing some kind of sexual purity where you don't have intercourse before marriage, but anything else goes. We are pursuing holiness because holiness is most beautiful and most fulfilling. God demands absolute perfection. Let's face it, all of us, no matter our backgrounds, are sexually broken and guilty to some degree. How many of us in this room have never struggled with a lustful thought? God demands perfection. Even those of us who pretend that we have holier things to do in our marriages than enjoy sexual pleasure with our spouse, well, that is just as sinful. God demands perfection. He's a righteous God. But as much as that might be bad news for us and convicting news for us, the next point is that God declares a new identity. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us that by the gospel, and this is good news, we have been given a new identity. That's what Martin Luther discovered when he was reading Romans. And he kept reading that term, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, and he hated it. Here he is, a Roman, uh, a Roman Catholic priest and he's reading this and he is just angry with God. It's like he's teasing me. He's holding this righteousness just out of my grasp until he realized that what Paul meant by righteousness of God is that it's a righteousness from God. It's a gift 
that God wants to give freely without works. You can't do anything for it. We've only done all the breaking of the law. It is Jesus that comes and achieves that for us on the cross. And what we get out of it? Well, Paul tells us, do you not know that the unrighteous in 1 Corinthians 6 will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not inheriting the kingdom of God is not a sex issue, it's a sin issue. And then he says to the Corinthian church, and such were some of you, that used to be your identity. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Past tense, once for all, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God and through the gospel, By the power of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, he gives you a new identity. Your identity is no longer your sexuality or any other identity that people might put on you. Your identity is in Christ, saved, a saint, a holy one, chosen of God, a child of God, and so on. The list goes on. And God directs his children in holiness 1 Corinthians 6, again, we're going to stay there for a bit. Corinth was very similar to Western society. The crossroads of human traffic due to location. Just outside of the city, 2,000 feet in the air behind the city was a temple to Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, goddess of love. And at night, 1,000 temple prostitutes would come down from the temple into Corinth, into the city after dark to work their trade at night. Yes, the sex industry, sex slavery, which is another devastating effect, by the way, of the sexual revolution, is still was alive and well in the Corinthian uh, society at that time. And the Corinthian church may not have been in danger in per, uh, of persecution, but they were certainly in danger of indoctrination. And it was in the church. They were using phrases like, all things are lawful for me. Paul uses that phrase and says, yeah, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. First thing he teaches them is your body is so significant. Corinthians believed that their body was not significant. The only thing that was significant was your spirit. And since sex was a physical act, Therefore, it wasn't significant. It was like eating food. Paul says that's not true. First of all, your body is significant because it was never intended to be separated from your soul or your spirit. But secondly, sex is not just a physical act. It is very spiritual. It was created by God. Some of the things he teaches them through the text of 1 Corinthians 6, we don't have time to go into them all, But he teaches them that your body is the Lord's provision. It was made for the Lord and for service to the Lord. It has a future. God will raise us up by his power bodily. It is a member of Christ. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Your body is the Lord's priority. So therefore flee sexual immorality. Every other sin outside the body and so on is is outside the body. Uh, Let me read it here. Uh, Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he is joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit 
with him. Every other sin, uh, verse 18, a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. It is a very spiritual act and the body is the Lord's priority. Not only that, the body has a resident. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a Christian born again, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is with you all the time. And verse 20 teaches that you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What is this? God directs his children in holiness. This is sexual discipleship. And we need to make this a priority that we in a culture that is over-sexualized be preaching the gospel to each other. And yes, it covers even this area of our humanity. You're not your own. Paul is teaching very clearly. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You're bought with a price. And by the way, if you can measure the price you're bought with, just try. But if it took the eternal, infinite creator of the universe and nothing less to come down into our world, into our history, become one of us, to die on a cross in the most agonizing way possible, to endure the complete punishment and wrath of God for your sin in mind. When Paul says you're bought with a price, it just seems like an understatement, doesn't it? You're bought with a price. And that should define how we use our bodies sexually. It should answer many, many questions that are raised in our culture today about what is right and what is wrong and so on. Well, finally, we want to look at what gospel discipleship would look like in this area of sexuality. First of all, be an example by pursuing holiness. Paul was often saying things like, follow my example, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Some of the ways we do this, we are an example by authentically uh, sharing our own struggle to pursue holiness. You need to be careful with this one and wise based on the context as to how much you share. But I can assure you that with my children, I don't hold back from sharing many of the struggles that I've had. Because one of the things when I was growing up and very young that was implied based on the Christians around me that never talked about sexuality was that my sexual thoughts and lusts and so on that I struggled with, no one else struggled with but me. I just assumed that was the case. So therefore, you don't share them with anyone. You don't speak to anyone about them. And it took me into my adult life before I had to find someone to share my struggles with. I remember a few years ago, I was speaking at a week-long session with men on the issue of sexual integrity. And after the first night, our subject was on dealing with guilt and a sense of guilt. Um, I had men come up to me afterwards who said, we have never, ever had anyone come to this church and speak on this subject before. In fact, many of them said individually, I thought I was the only one here who struggled with anything like this. 
And it wasn't long before they were getting into accountability groups. They were connecting with each other. They were encouraging each other. They were keeping each other accountable, pushing each other towards holiness and so on. And it was beginning to turn things around. Satan wants us to keep isolated. He wants us to stay separated. He wants us thinking in our own minds that we're the only one who has to struggle with anything regarding lust, but it's not true. Be an example of pursuing holiness, pursuing self-control. In recognizing your gospel identity that is above every other identity that the world might put on you. Lust is lust, folks. Those struggles may be real, but we pursue holiness. That's what we're called to pursue. We're told to flee sexual immorality, to run from it, not to create a vacuum, but to run towards the beauty of holiness and the character and nature of God, to get to know God, to seek him out, to live and to walk and to serve him and to worship him. Next, uh, do not run from conversations about sexuality. This seems to be the default uh, instinct to run. They make us uncomfortable. But conversations about sexuality should be gospel conversations. If Jesus is Lord, if he's Lord of my life, then he must be Lord of all of it. And he must have authority over my sexuality. Paul in Romans 13 said, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual or immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what lordship looks like when Christ is Lord of our life. And this is true with unbelievers first. Where do our conversations about sexuality begin with unbelievers? Well, they begin with the lordship of Christ. Either he's God or he's not. Whenever this topic would come up at work, when I was leading a department of uh, young guys, mainly young guys, all from different backgrounds and obviously had uh, different viewpoints on this subject, but I always started with the fact that, listen, I come from a worldview that God is the boss. He made it. He understands it. He designed it. I'm going to follow his instructions. And it's a wise way to live because he's a good God. He knows what he's doing and anything else is a counterfeit and self-destructive. So with unbelievers, we don't run from these conversations and say, please stop talking about that. I'm about holiness over here. Jesus didn't do that, did he? He didn't shy away from these conversations. When he spoke to the woman at the well, he actually brought it up. He raised that point. You've had five husbands and the one you're living with right now isn't even your husband anymore. And look how far you've gone pointing out again the self-destructive nature of what she was chasing after that she couldn't grasp. When he spoke to the men who accused the adulterous woman, it was the same thing. He didn't run from the conversation. He faced it. Or the Pharisee who judged the prostitute who was a sinner 
washing his feet, actually touching him? If he is who he says he is, he'd at least know her reputation. He would never let this happen. He had something to say to her, and he also had something to say to this cultural influencer, the Pharisee. Don't run from them with your children. When is the age to begin speaking to your children about sexuality? I would say now. You don't even know how old my kids are. I don't care. Start now. We, at our dinner table, it didn't matter what age our kids were. This subject was not taboo. It was not off the table. Because I want to teach my kids that, first of all, sex came from God. He's the owner of it, the designer of it. We're going to talk about it. We're not going to make up names for um, genitals and things like that. We're going to uh, speak about these things in very straightforward terms. We're not going to be embarrassed about this. Don't run from conversations with your children. Now, how detailed you get with young children is a different story. But at a young age, listen, if, if you're trying to teach them at 13, I'm going to tell you, you're, you're far too late in our culture. Josh McDowell, again, mentioning him, a separate talk that he gave at Moody a number of years ago, Founders Week, on the subject of pornography. He made it very clear that while software might work to a degree, it's not going to save your kids. It's not a matter of if they'll see it. It's a matter of when they'll see it. And his whole point was you need to prepare your children so that when they see the counterfeit, they understand it's a counterfeit and they run from it. How do you do that? Again, the health of your marriage and how you reflect what a relationship, what a healthy relationship looks like in your marriage is a great model for your kids. If your kids can look at Hollywood and look at your marriage and be able to see the difference between what is fake and what is real, what is destructive and what is lasting and joy-filled and a blessing, it's going to go a long way. But we need to be talking about these things with our kids. They're going to be exposed to it. The problem is if you're not talking to them about it, they won't talk to you about it. I can guarantee that. That when they are exposed to it, it may be the most innocent place that you would never expect. It's all around. If you're not already talking to them about it, they're not going to see you as someone that they can go to and talk to you about whatever it is that they've been exposed to. And with your spouse, there need to be conversations about sexuality. That is a, about what is comfortable, what is not. The lines that you're willing to go to, the lines you're not willing to go to. There's much application and teaching in the New Testament about that and about offending another believer and so on. These conversations have to happen. We can't stop talking about it or keep silent about it and expect it to go away. It's not going to go away. Discipleship in the Christian church should not run from conversations about sexuality. Number three, discern between an agenda and brokenness. I think maybe we can see that tonight as we looked at the devastating results of the culture. There's a difference between activists and victims. And Jesus dealt with both 
Matthew 11 is a great example of Jesus dealing with both in the same chapter. In fact, in the same sermon. Matthew 11, verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Dealing with activists requires boldness. You cannot let them win. There are activists in our school system. There are activists in the government. There are activists in uh, medical facilities. They're everywhere. There are activists that speak out against Kira Bell, who's not a Christian, by the way. She hasn't come to Christ but they still speak out against her and try to crush her and cancel her and silence her and call her a bigot for speaking out about how her life was devastated by what happened to her and the transformation that she is trying so hard to reverse. The activists are bent on evil. You see this in the Proverbs, by the way. There are three types of people in the Proverbs. There's the ordinary sinner known as the wise. Those are people who are convicted by their sin. They turn, they seek counsel and so on. There's the fool who's kind of irrational in his ways. He's kind of confused. He doesn't know how to navigate. He's always talking, letting his opinion be known. He's not really seeking counsel, but he's not really bent on evil. He's just self-destructing his life because he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. He's not seeking the Lord. And then you have the evil person. They're just bent on evil. They're bent on the destruction of others around them. That's the activist. The ones who open up women's prisons to men to just come in and take advantage. The ones who cover up girls in high school bathrooms who are being raped and then no justice is being given them. Woe to them. But then in the same sermon, in the same chapter, uh, at, the same time, at that time, Jesus declared, Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. He's turning to people now who are who labor and are heavy laden in society, in the society that he was living in. He says, I will give you rest. This is the cry that we should be giving to our neighbors and to those who are confused by the love is love message, to those who have had their lives devastated, to those who have been sexually abused and they don't know what they're supposed to be or what their identity is. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We need to take those broken hearts of ours tonight and turn them to prayer and then to seek out the lost. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Yes, he called for a millstone to be put around the necks of those who will offend these little ones. And at the same time, 
He had a heart for these little ones, even the sinners who had had their lives train wrecked by the sexual promiscuity of even his time period and every time period throughout a hall of human history. Jesus has mercy and we need to present a merciful gospel to people who have been wrecked by the sexual revolution. The last one, commit to discipling others regarding God's design. This goes back to being an example, but it goes a little bit further, especially in the area of discipline. Discipline is different than punishment. As Christians, we are not in the business of punishment. We are in the business of discipline. Why? What's the difference? Discipline teaches. It might teach through pain, but it teaches. It teaches that sin hurts. That's what it's supposed to do. So Hebrews 12, the Hebrew writer is reminding uh, the Christians that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and so on. Yes, the church must not tolerate sin within its body. So we learned even on Sunday about the model for discipline in Matthew 18, this three stages of holding people accountable personally and then taking witnesses if they don't repent and then again if they don't repent, bringing it to the church and so on. There is a model for discipline, but the church must not tolerate sin of any form. We need to commit to discipling. The word discipline is right in the idea of discipling others regarding God's design, pushing people towards holiness, pressing on people the beauty of God and and how he is our fulfillment. He is our satisfaction before anything else. Training and teaching and making sure that we move out into the world as lights, as lights in the darkness of the sexual revolution. 